0: Well, good morning. I'm Ms. Mean, Marshall. I'll peach on uh, the passages that Wayne just read for us. It's a long chapter, so we divided it up, as you see. I do want to wish a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the room. Uh, as Nick alluded to, as you could hear in the prayer, Mother's Day is a fraught day in so many ways. It's all, I know that some of you are probably forced to be here by your mothers, so uh, there's that too. or by your. Uh, I'll leave it there. Um, let me pray as we look at this moving and important story. God, we come uh, before you on, uh, on this Lord's Day, on this Mother's Day, to look at a text that is, um, there's just a lot of levels to it. And so, God, for wherever we are on this day, this May 14th of 2023, I pray that you would meet us, that you would speak to us, uh, that your spirit would communicate clearly. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. We have been and are studying the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph is the last story in the first book of the Bible. The last story in the first book of the Bible. The first book of the Bible is called Genesis. And today is a story, as you have just heard, the exaltation exaltation of Joseph, maybe even his vindication. When Joseph a slave and a prisoner, becomes the prince of Egypt, a man with immense power in the ancient world. Now, Egypt was most likely the most powerful nation in the world at the time. This is before the Roman time. This is before the Greek time. And because Pharaoh had absolute power over that absolutely powerful nation, to be the number two person is to be a person of immense influence and power. I think it's fair to say, this is my estimation, but in relative terms, in relative terms, Joseph would have been more powerful than the president of the United States of America, okay? So now surface level, on the surface level, this story that you've just heard read, this story is a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps story, okay? Uh, because Joseph, through his patience and suffering, through his loyalty, through his willingness to speak forthrightly before power, Joseph is exalted, from slavery to sovereignty. From the prison to the palace. And once Joseph is exalted, once he gets this big job, he excels in his job. He works hard. He faces crises boldly. He makes tough decisions. I mean, when, think about this. When the sun is shining, things are going well, they have bumper crops. He starts tra- charging a 20% tax as a form of Social Security. A necessary but likely unpopular decision. Leadership is tough. But through this all, Joseph averts a major humanitarian disaster, saves an untold number of lives, including his own family and his brothers who treated him so awfully. On the one hand, on the surface level, this is a feel-good story, right, of triumph over adversity. And on a surface level, this could be like a Hallmark story, like, you know, those feel-good movies that seem to come on more and more these days, the Hallmark. But with a deeper dive, as I hope to do today, we will see the nuance, the subtlety, the pathos, the depth, the intrigue. This is a story fit for HBO or for Netflix, now, to get to the depth of that story, here, there's several ways we could do that. I want to get it to the eyes of the characters and specifically by looking at the names that they give. Because if you look carefully, if you heard what Wayne said, uh, Pharaoh renames Joseph, gives him an Egyptian name. And then when Joseph has two sons born to him in Egypt, he gives them Hebrew names. So we'll talk about that. Okay, changes, the name changes. That'll be our outline is the three names. So before though we get to that, before we get to the names, let's lay out the facts. I think it's important to understand the story, what has happened and what happens in these chapters. Verse Chapter 37, several weeks ago, Joseph was a snot-nosed 17-year-old who was sold into slavery by his brothers. Genesis 39, which was last week's sermon, he resists, Joseph does, the temptation of his master's wife, Potiphar's wife. And in a refrain refrain of the old story that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, that woman has Joseph thrown in prison. Genesis chapter 40, which we briefly looked at last week. In prison, Joseph meets two of the king's servants who have been cast, one temporarily, into prison alongside Joseph. The baker and the cupbearer. While he is in prison with them, Joseph correctly interprets those men's dreams, and in accordance with the interpretation of those dreams, the cupbearer is removed back from prison and put back at Pharaoh's right hand, returned to power. But as the very first verse that we read this morning says, verse 23 of chapter 40, that person, the cupbearer, forgets Joseph and leaves him in prison. He forgets Joseph until, until verse chapter 41, the cupbearer's boss, a man named Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, has a dream, has dreams too, actually, that deeply disturb him. I mean, one of the modern connection points to this ancient story is waking up in the middle of the night uh, terrified about your job. Uh, You can relate to this, right? But verse 9 in chapter 41, Pharaoh's disturbing dreams remind the cupbearer of Joseph. And so the cupbearer tells Joseph, tells Pharaoh, "Excuse me, hey, there's a guy who can interpret your dreams." And so he calls for Joseph. Verse 14, they basically make Joseph into an Egyptian. They shave him, they clean him up, they make him look like an Egyptian. And long story short, Joseph interprets the Pharaoh's dreams correctly, which are they're going to be the next 7 years are going to be years of bumper crops. And then after those seven years, there will be seven years of extreme famine. Pharaoh believes Joseph and makes him the number two person in all of Egypt... ...and tasks Joseph with preparing the nation for a time of famine. He gives him an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife. Joseph goes forward to assume his job. At work, he scouts out the land. He starts to store up. He sets up a system and stores the grain. He imposes the 20% tax... And at home, he has two sons. Now, the famine comes at least to the region, if not to the world. And uh, if you, I wish I had a map up here. But just to the north, where modern-day Israel is. If you know where modern-day Egypt is, and modern Israel, that's basically where these people were. Modern-day Canaan, uh, modern-day Israel, which is ancient Canaan, which is where Joseph's father, Jacob, and his brothers are. There's a famine there. They hear about it. And so Daddy Jacob sends his ten sons, ten of his eleven sons, left to Egypt because they hear there is grain. Okay? And this brings Joseph's brothers to his doorstep in Egypt. He recognizes them. They do not recognize him. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. So those are the facts. Okay, I just need to retell that story to kind of get us the framing so we can talk about the interpretation by looking at the names. And the first name I want to look at is the name that Pharaoh gives to Joseph. Now, after Joseph has interpreted the dreams correctly... Beginning with verse 37, Pharaoh decides to exalt Joseph, okay? Now, I did not print all these verses, but in several ways it tells the story of how uh, Pharaoh exalts Joseph. He basically gives him a signet ring. He gives him new clothes. He gives him a new ride, a chariot, and a security detail. He basically gives him, it's not Air Force One, but he gets a G6. He gets a motorcade, and he gets a clothing allowance, okay? But then verse 44 but Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath-Paniah, Zephanath-Paniah. Now, I want to be careful here because the text does not translate this, the, the, the meaning of Joseph's name. But Egyptologists tell us that that name, Zephanath-Paniah, means God speaks, God lives. God speaks, God lives. And that makes sense that translation, for two reasons. One, what Joseph says, and two, what Pharaoh says. Look with me first at what Joseph does to explain his actions. Look with me at verse 16 of chapter 41. Chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 41, verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph is saying, this is not me, this is God. But it's not just Joseph's words that give us this interpretation. It is also Pharaoh's words echoing Joseph. Look with me at verse 38 of chapter 41. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. Okay? So, now, there's two things I want us to see, though those are the kind of the proof. The two things I want us to see about Pharaoh giving Joseph this new name. God speaks, God lives. The first one is this. This is one of countless examples of God's people uh, being a blessing to the nations. God, When God called J- Joseph's great-great-grandfather, a man named Abraham, he says, you are blessed to be a blessing to others. You are blessed to bless the nations, to bless others. And in this instance, we see Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, blessing the nations. He's blessing the nation of Egypt by intervening, by interpreting, and eventually leading so that Egypt is not decimated by famine. And friends, that is such a good word for us to remember because we too are called to be a blessing to the nations. We are called to be a blessing to our neighbors. We are God's people. And God's people throughout time are called to be a blessing to all around them. One of the reasons that we chose our logo, which is a shade tree, which is because we're in the tree streets, but we also chose that logo of a shade tree, is because we want to be that for our our neighbors and our friends. A shade tree, a blessing to those around us, our neighbors, our friends, everyone on the North Shore. We are called to be a blessing to the nations as Joseph here is to Egypt. And that brings us to the second thing, though. That it is Joseph's faith in God that is contagious. Joseph's faith in God is contagious. Pharaoh comes to Joseph with a problem. And Joseph speaks of that problem using the name of God. And Joseph actually speaks to Pharaoh interpreting the reality through the lens of God. He says, it's not me. It is God. You see, Joseph's speech... And even Joseph's understanding are saturated with God. You see, the lens through which Joseph looks at all of reality is God. God's goodness, God's power, God's love. He looks at that and that's how he speaks. And so Pharaoh almost unconsciously adopts Joseph's lens for reality and Pharaoh adopts Joseph's manner of speaking of God. Joseph says, this is how God works. And then you hear Pharaoh saying almost the same thing back to him. Two weeks ago, uh, Donnie Saint-Germain from Haiti was here preaching. Uh, He is our partner in Haiti. And he spoke to us boldly of the call for us to share our faith. I said to somebody, I'm glad Donnie preaches. It was was great to hear Donnie. Y'all don't hear enough sermons like that from me. But Donnie preached boldly about sharing your faith. And afterwards, our grace group, We had a good conversation about what that looks like. How do you share your faith? Especially in a pluralistic society, especially in the day and age in which we live, how do you do that, especially in public, especially at work? I mean, it's not by, by the way, playing, you know, praise music loud on your work speakers at work, you know? It's not wearing a Jesus tie. It's not even preaching at work. But it can be, sharing your faith can be, speaking of your life in terms of God and the way that he works, Let me give you several examples. Speaking of your life with a God-saturated lens. For instance, do you know this? When your young children come to you and you see a beautiful sunset or something like that, what do you say? Well, that is something that God created. That's easy with young children, right? Well, maybe you're a student and you're asked why you don't engage in certain behaviors. To reference it is something that God has called us to not because he wants to punish us, because it's his loving plan. But at a deeper and more difficult level, for all of us, especially at work and secular paces, I think one way that we can testify to God, to have God-saturated speech, is to speak of our lives, not our non-Christian friends' lives, but speak of our lives and our struggles in light of what God is doing and what God has to say about our life. Since it is Mother's Day, allow me to honor the mother who lives at my house, my wife. Before our son was born, we lived in Los Angeles, and Allison worked at some really cool places and did some cool things. She worked for MTV, she worked for CBS, maybe coolest of all, she worked for the Cartoon Network. Uh, if you ask her, Grammys, ESPYS, Emmys, she's been to all of them because of her work, and she loved her work and the people with whom she worked. You may have heard me say or her say, but she did not come to faith in Jesus till about the age of thirty. But once she did, once she came to faith, she would speak of her life, she would speak of her life at work in terms of her struggles and how she was struggling with God to work out this new following Jesus thing that she was doing. For example, she was dating a man who was not a follower of Jesus. She became a follower of Jesus. She was dating a man who was not a follower of Jesus. She knew that was a problem because of her faith and she started to speak of it at work. And two things happened through that struggle. First, at least one coworker came to faith. How? By overhearing Allison process her following Jesus, even as she was relation, uh, dealing with this man that she cared about. That's the first thing that happened. The second thing happened, she broke up with that guy and eventually married a pastor. <laughs> I did have permission to tell that. Joseph spoke of God. And Pharaoh almost unconsciously followed suit. God speaks. He lives, said Pharaoh. So that's the first name, the name that Pharaoh gave Joseph. Now in verses 50 to 52, God gives children to Joseph. And like all of us, really, but uh, he is very intentional about the names Joseph is that he gives to his children. So let's look at those two names. Look with me verse 51, this is point number 2. I'll just make it the verse. Verse 51. Joseph called the name of his firstborn son Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Now, as a reminder, as a reminder, Joseph had been abandoned by his brothers and sold into slavery by those brothers. And at first glance... This name appears to be Joseph saying, you know what, the past is the past, I'm living in the present, and I am not going to deal with all the pain that is in my past, what my brother, what my family did to me. But there's several reasons that cannot be the case, that he's not just saying, forget this. First, interestingly, he gives his sons Hebrew names. He doesn't give them Egyptian names, he gives them Hebrew names. How can you forget your Hebrew past if you give your children Hebrew names? Second, in just a few verses, he clearly remembers his brother's. And third, one of the great uh, scholars of the book of Genesis a man named Robert Alter. I think he's still living, teaches at Berkeley. But Robert Alter says, he translates this verse this way. God has released me from the debt of my hardship. God has released me from the debt of my hardship. I think that gets more to what Joseph is saying here. But there's also this. By by, by giving names that speak of the past, he guarantees, Joseph does that every time he calls his son, he will remember his past. Manasseh, 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 whatever. However, he speaks Manasseh, he's going to remember his past. He's going to remember his own past. Of course, he did not forget what his brothers did to him. What his brothers did to him changed the course of his life. Joseph has not forgotten his past. He is remembering and recalling his past through the lens of God's presence with him in his affliction, in his suffering. He's not forgetting the past. He's not rewriting history. He is not brushing over what happens. He has and is grieving what happened. And he is in the process of releasing the debt. Which is to say he's beginning to forgive his brothers, And one way we know this, and this is fascinating, I'd never known this about the story of Joseph until I started studying it, is Joseph's tears. By my count, and I may be wrong, by my count, Joseph weeps eight times in these chapters. Eight times. And it's one of the things that's interesting, this, is, this is the whole, whole point is a little bit of an aside. Joseph is never recorded weeping or crying in prison, or in the pit, or in affliction. He is only recorded weeping and crying once he has been exalted. And the first time he weeps is the last verse that we read today, chapter 42, verse 24. But we'll talk about that in a second. But let this sink in for just a moment. Powerful North Shore people, let this sink in. The second most powerful man in the world weeps eight times. He weeps in private. He weeps in public. He weeps for his own hurt. He weeps for what his brothers have done to him. The last instance of his weeping in Genesis chapter 50, he weeps because his not because he is fearful or guilt-ridden. He weeps at his brother's fearfulness and their guilt. He weeps for others, which is to say Joseph weeps because his brothers are broken. He weeps because he is broken. He weeps because the world is broken. Friends, the world deserves our tears because it is broken. In this first set of tears, which we see in today's passage, chapter 42, verse 21 and following, it be, he weeps as his brothers begin to acknowledge their guilt. Verse 21, we are guilty concerning our brother, and when he hears them say that, it's then that he weeps. That's what prompts his tears, which is to say his tears are tears of grief and forgiveness. And because they are tears of godly gift, they are not tears of weakness, they are tears of hope and of strength. Joseph has not forgotten his past. He is grieving his past. As a counselor once said to me, Marshall, trust your grief, it will move. He's grieving his past and he is being released from the debt of his past as he begins to forgive his brothers. Friends, my assessment of the North Shore is we don't do this very well. I could probably count on one hand the times I've seen a man weep in my office. One of the times, thankfully, was very recently. You see, so many of us, your senior pastor included, we have these happy faces, these Instagram lives, this facade. That's on the outside. But beneath there is deep hurt. There is hurt and pain. There's sad hearts beneath those smiling faces. And we must learn to grieve those things. Why? Because grief moves we got to deal with the sadness, the hurt. Because some of you are like, well, Joseph's just a crybaby. And maybe you are too, Marshall. Wailing about his family of origin. No, friends, Joseph is strong. He is strong. And by naming his firstborn Manasseh, he is placing his past in the context of what God is doing. He's telling his story in the light of God's redemption. He's telling his story in the light of God's redemption. How do you tell your story? Most of us tell our stories either as hero stories or as victim stories. Most of us tell stories. What what are you more? I do both, honestly. Uh, What do you do? Do you tell your story as a story of of a hero? I, I overcame. I mean, Joseph can clearly tell a hero story. I overcame this. I got to be the palace, right, from the prison. He also could tell this as a victim story like look what happened to me right how do you tell your story is a hero or as a victim well Jesus, uh, joseph who very well could tell either he chooses neither hero nor victim what does he tell he tells a story of god and his redemption joseph could never forget what happened to him but those wounds become scars and those scars are not so much badges of honor that he's tough those scars, those emotional scars, are badges of no more of his victimhood, but they are stories of They're pictures of God's faithfulness. They're scars that point to His grace, God's and His faithfulness, as if Joseph takes his scars and makes them a part of God's larger, redemptive story. Manasseh. He has made me forget my affliction. There's one more name. And as Ian Duguid points out, this name helps us to understand how painful memories can be reshaped. Verse 52: The name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Friends, we are never promised. You need to hear this is: we are never promised that God will remove us from a land or a season of affliction. Certainly, from the pit of despair. Joseph would have longed, would have prayed, would have desired, return me to my people, return me to my homeland, return me to my beloved father. There's no question that for Joseph his circumstances would have been better. The the, the prince of Egypt is wonderful, but better to be home with his loving family, his loving father. But Joseph learned to love and to live in his story, not someone else's. He learned what it was to be fruitful in the land of his Affliction. I don't know what your affliction is this morning. Maybe it's cancer, cancer for someone you love. Maybe it is financial stress. Maybe it is some form of widowhood. You're a widow, a widower. Maybe it's something in your home life It's falling to pieces. Maybe like Jacob, the father in this story, who at this point it has been 20 years and he thinks his son is dead. Maybe you're estranged from a child. I don't know the grief you're in, but I do know this. Psalm 126, where there is sowing with tears, there can be reaped with shouts of joy. I do know Psalm 84, that through the valley of Baca, you can pass through the valley of suffering and misery. That's what Baca means. And make it a place of springs. I do know that there can be a faithfulness and a fruitfulness in the land of affliction. And for Joseph, that fruitfulness involves being raised up, socio political savior of the entire region. God uses Joseph in mighty ways. He saves untold numbers of lives. He brings his brothers to Egypt, which, so there can be reconciliation and repentance. More importantly than that, and this is a little bit of the bonus section. This is a little bit. This is AP credit, advanced placement credit. I'm gonna go real quickly here. But if you're a Bible, if you if you know your Bible, you'll know this. The reason that Joseph goes to weather this famine is so that the seed of the Messiah will be saved. Why is Joseph in Egypt? So that the Messiah can come. Because for God's purposes and redemption to stand, the 12 sons of Jacob must become the 12 tribes of Israel. His brother Levi must live so there can be a priesthood, so there can be a temple. And most of all, Joseph's brother Judah must live and his offspring because through Judah comes the Messiah, who we call Jesus. End of AP section. But back to the main section. Friends, you must learn to see the fruitfulness in your land of affliction. Learn to love your story. Your story. You're the only person with your story. The only one in all of creation and all of time with your story. And we, all of God's people, need you to love and live out fruitfully and faithfully God's story. Even in the midst of your affliction even in the midst of your affliction. But there's even better news than this, friends, because Joseph was not just a model from whom to learn. You see, his life of humiliation and then exaltation points forward to a greater reality. It points forward to a story of even greater affliction and, yes, even greater faithfulness. Because Joseph is a great Israelite, and he is a great Israelite, Joseph is. But a greater Israelite is coming. And he is the Messiah and his name is Jesus. And he was not number 2 in the land of Egypt. He is the creator of the world. He was the king of kings, the lord of lords. And yet Jesus was humiliated. And his affliction was not a dozen or so years in prisons. Jesus humiliation was becoming a human taking flesh. He be, the God who created all things took on human flesh and he still has it. He still has flesh. And not only did he take on flesh, Jesus died for the sins of the world. But here's the amazing thing. Like Joseph, Jesus keeps his scars. This is one of the most perplexing things to me in the New Testament. After his resurrection, Jesus shows up in John 20 to Thomas and the disciples, and especially to Thomas, and he shows them his his scars. And he says, touch it. See where the nails pierced me. Why God raised him from the dead? Why did not God heal the scars? Why does Jesus resurrected body have scars? Why the wounds? Why not heal them? Friends, because the scars speak of a beautiful redemption. They speak of a great love. Jesus will never forget his suffering. Jesus will never forget his affliction, his betrayal, his denial, his death, the innocent for the guilty. He will never forget his scars. Because your hands, your names are written, our names are written in those scars. He does not want to forget the affliction because he does not want to forget the fruitfulness. And who is the fruit? We are. We are the fruit. And so his affliction was so that we might be the fruit. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you can look to those scars and know that your God loves you. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, but you're considering the claims, you can look to this Jesus and know that his scars are the marks of his love for you. Because in his furnace of affliction, he bore a great faithfulness and fruitfulness that we might become and that we are the beloved, the beloved of a God who gave himself for us. Jesus was afflicted so that you and I can be his. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that we would know just how much you love us. I have no idea the affliction that's in this room, but I do know that you can be there with us and meet us. Please do that for your name's sake. Amen.